Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we study your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds. We pray that your spirit of love will join us today, that we may know that we've been with you when we leave here today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in our quarterly, The Christian Life, and the lesson title this week is Sin. Somebody read for us the memory text, please. Just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. What do y'all think this text means? A summary statement, just to sum it up? Oh, I like that. Jesus made right what Adam made wrong. I like that. Uh, Because of Adam's actions, all humans are born terminal. Because of Christ's actions, a remedy exists that cures all who trust God. Yeah. Somebody read the first paragraph in Sunday's lesson. What is the essence of sin? How does the Bible define it? 1 John 3, 4 states, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. The New Living Translation reads, Sin opposes the law, while the traditional KJV renders, defines sin as transgression of the law. But it is not just any law that humanity has broken. It is God's law. Humans have rebelled against their maker, pretending that they themselves are the measure of all things, rather than in humble trust, submitting to the wisdom and love of God. How do you hear that paragraph? What message are you you getting from that? Forensic view. Forensic view. Could you expound on what you mean? From the Adventist attending to view sin as primarily breakdown of God's law. Well, it, it depends on one's perception. If you're if you're looking through, through a legalistic filter, then, then yes, you can see that. If you're looking through it through a um, an idea of what law was broken. Yeah, let's talk. And, and, and the significance behind violating that law versus, um, you know, illegal. Well, let's get some ideas out there. What law was broken? Law of love. Law of, love. Law of life. Love. So, so if you look at this as, like, just we just broke a law, that's all we did is we just broke a law. You for, uh, people forget that we um, don't have that relationship with God that he really wants us to have. And it's more about the relationship. When you say the law of law, yes. Typically, as Adventists, we look at this as the Ten Commandment law. Thank you for bringing that up. I was about to ask that question. So we have some some say the, the law of love, and some have have more defined that as the Ten Commandments law. Do we view those two things differently? Do you hear differently? Ten Commandments, law of love, is it the same synonyms? You interchangeable, or do you hear those as different things? They're different. They're different. They should be the same. They should be the same. They're different. They're different. How do you, how do we hear the how do we traditionally have you heard the sin is transgression of the law as sin is a breakdown in love or have you traditionally heard sin is transgression of the law as a breaking of the commandments? Well, does that sound more like a behavior problem? Yes. An action problem. Bad deeds. You do bad stuff. Yeah, that's that's what I think part of the trouble is. See, because when we diagnose the problem incorrectly, then when we go to offer a treatment or remedy, well, if we've got the wrong diagnosis, then we get the wrong remedy. And so if we diagnose primarily that it's a behavior problem, breaking of the rules, the Ten Commandments, then we devise all types of remedies for that. And, and what is the, well, the next question I have in my notes is, is it wrong 
to break the law because God said don't do it? Or did God say don't do it because it's wrong? Well, the next question is, what makes breaking the law wrong? Why is it wrong to break the law? It harms the lawbreaker. Okay, it kills us, harms the lawbreaker. It's a bad idea. Okay, the traditional way of looking at this, it's breaking the, the Ten Commandments, breaking the rules. In the traditional way, what would be the problem with doing that? God gets mad because he's offended because these mere mortals have transgressed his law. Yes, he is holy, and he's made a holy law, and humans have rebelled against their maker, pretending that they themselves are the measure of all things, rather than in humble trust submitting to the wisdom of God. So we, so he, since we don't humble and trust and we don't submit to his will, we break his rules, it offends him, he's wrathful, what's he, what's he have to do in order to be just? To, he has to punish somebody. This is a traditional view. Does that bring you comfort? Does it reduce your fear and anxiety or raise your fear and anxiety? Keep that in mind as we go along today, because... As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. You're going to notice that there's an inverse relationship between fear and love. As godly love goes up, fear goes down. As false versions of God go up, as distortions, as lies, as misrepresentations go up, so does fear and love goes down. So we're going to, going to explore that. So what makes it wrong? You're right. I agree with you guys. It makes it wrong because when we breach this law, which is the law of love, this is the design template for life. And pain, suffering, and death is the result. Now, in the second paragraph, let's look at the second paragraph in the same, same Sunday's lesson. It says, why did God punish Adam and Eve for what seemed to be an insignificant matter? That's, the problem is with the question. Did God punish Adam and Eve? It was, their, it was the consequences of what happened. Is, any, is anybody got a Bible text out there that would support the idea that God punished Adam and Eve? Well, he removed them from the Garden of Eden. He removed them from the Garden of Eden. Is that punishment? Probably was. Okay. What happened to the ground? Were you about to say that? The ground was cursed? Was that a punishment? Yeah. Some people would think. Some people would think. Yes, you had another comment? I have a friend that when he's dealing with parents to children, he doesn't use the word punishment. He uses the word correction. Correction is a better word. Actually, I like a word even a little better. It's called discipline. Discipline comes from the root word disciple, and it means to teach. So when we discipline, we're teaching. God chastises or disciplines those he loves. He teaches. He corrects. Punishment comes from the root word punitive means to exact vengeance upon. Now, do you see the connotation differences here? So, w- would God be, as a loving father, after Adam and Eve sinned, would he be interested in disciplining or teaching them? Yes. Would he be interested in exacting vengeance upon them? No. No. The, the punishment is, is really a distortion in how we see God, and because of how we see his law. His law is a set of rules as he's enacted, Something he's imposed, and as the great imposer of the law, in order to be just, now he has to impose just penalties upon the breakers of the law. And so we got this really twisted idea, rather than understanding the law of love emanates from the God of love, God is love, and breaches have consequences, 
And God of love says, I don't want you to, I don't want you to, to suffer those consequences. I want to save you. I want to redeem you. I want to protect you from all the pain and suffering that will come if you stay out of harmony with my law. So instead, I'm going to discipline. I'm going to put in measures that will try to make it hard for you to be lost and direct you back in the path of, of the law of love. So we think about the cursed as the ground for your sake in Genesis 3.17. This is out of a, a book called Conflict and Courage, written by one of the founders of our church. And, and it says this, The life of toil and care, which was henceforth to be man's lot, was appointed in love. It was a discipline, disciple to teach, discipline rendered needful by his sin to place a check upon the indulgence of appetite and passion to develop habits of self-control. It was part of God's great plan for man's recovery from ruin and degradation of sin. So, cursed is the ground for your sake. Is it a punishment? Or is it part of the plan of recovery? To save, to heal, to restore? For your sake. Yeah. He even says it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. For your benefit. But how often have we heard that and said, see, boy, when you step out of line, God makes it hard on you. He puts stuff on you. He's going to make you pay. It's almost like it's a, it has to do with the uh, immaturity level or the maturity level of the person receiving the discipline. If you're immature, if you're a child, you see that discipline as being punishment because you don't understand why it's happening to you. As you mature, as an adult, you see that, that sometimes discipline, you can understand that there is a purpose behind it. There's a, a, a good that will come. And I, I agree. Not even as a children do we see discipline as punishment. We see remedy treatment as punishment uh we we were out playing when we weren't supposed to be and we slipped and scraped our knee and now mom's going to put methylate on it anybody ever have that day it's like no mommy don't do it (laughs) right it's like oh it hurts or or getting your vaccines what did i do wrong to deserve this well nothing you see when god is remedying healing intervening to to restore and cleanse there's often discomfort involved if we've got something unhealthy in our hearts and minds that we're clinging to. To let go of that, to have it removed, can be painful. And we, as children, might misunderstand and think God is punishing. And I think that that happens quite frequently. Have you ever heard the statement, idle hands are the devil's workshop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you've known those. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well. Tell us that. Yeah. <laughs> That uh, Well, this is the part of the cursing of the ground, to keep them occupied, to keep them busy on something constructive, to help develop healthy neural circuits of self-discipline and self-governance. They were even given work prior to the fall. Yeah, but the work prior to the fall was, uh, was, was, was healthy for their, for their activity, but it wasn't to keep them, uh, the, the carnal nature, under check. So he, he, he ratcheted up the intensity level of the work that you'd have to do. <laughs> Correct. But, I mean, he still fell under the umbrella of character development. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Absolutely. I thought the sentence in, um, uh, after, afterwards from Ellen White, it was distrust of God's goodness, disbelief of his word and rejection of his authority that made our first parents' transgression. Yeah, so the the deal there was a broken trust relationship. Exactly right. Exactly right. If you understand the law as the law of love, which is the design template for life, and they broke the law, does it change then how you see intercession? So if you think the law is an imposed law, God imposed a law, and if you abide by these rules, all's good. If you break the rules, the imposer of the law now has to inflict penalties. Versus 
you were created to operate on love, and if you break love, pain, suffering, and death comes. In those two worlds, are intercession the same thing? No. No. We have one intercession is, one member of the Godhead is interceding with the imposer of justice, the imposer of the penalty. We have the, the son interceding to take, Father, kill me, kill me, uh, in their place, and, and, and execute me instead. And, and my father, my, my blood for them, my blood for them. This is the intercession of an imposed law that has an imposer of penalties. The, the other intercession, when we have a natural law that comes from God, who, who designed all things to run in harmony with love, as soon as mankind sinned, they were destined, they were terminal, destined to die, except the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit began interceding. And they intercede in three places. One, principalities and powers of darkness are hold, held in check. The four winds are held in check by the angels of God. Um, hedges of protection are put around God's peoples, we're told all through the scriptures. So they hold evil forces are interceded with and held in check. Two, it says in Genesis 3, right after the sin, it said uh, to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So the Holy Spirit intercedes in our hearts and minds, bringing us enlightenment, conviction uh, of wrong, a desire for good. Every one of us, if it wasn't for God's intercession in our hearts, would be totally bent in evil. Even the unconverted still have the Holy Spirit interceding and pleading in their hearts to try and win them back. Is that not so? Yeah. Okay? So the second place interceding, the third place intercession took place is Christ became Sin, who knew no sin. He took our condition upon himself. He took our infirmities, our iniquities, our sick, sick condition upon himself in order to reverse all the damage that Adam's sin had done to the species. So he interceded with the condition in order to cure it. So intercession over here is the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit working together to heal humanity and reverse the damage of sin. Intercession in the imposed model is one member of the Godhead paying a legal penalty to buy off the anger and wrath of the other. Which do you guys think is more biblical? John 17 seemed to be intercession, where he was pleading with the Father for his disciples and so forth. And so I think that's the model, rather than some we've used all along. Intercession, or was it Jesus' humanity having his final, really, heart-melding communion with his Father before his great trial? Father, I need to be assured. My humanity has, has been tempted. I'm going through the Gethsemane experience. I'm being tempted to doubt through my, through my own humanity, which is, which, is, which is troubling me. Father, let them be one as you and I are one. And he's, is, he really, is it really an intercession that he doubts his Father's goodness, or is it his humanity pleading for what, the, what, is being, what, he's, what he's going through? Yeah. Yes, but also I think that changed my concept of he's up in heaven, they're interceding for us today. That if he's interceding like he was interceding for the disciples in his last hours here on earth in John 17, then praise the Lord. Well, he said in John 16, right before that prayer, he said, time has come for me to speak plainly to you about my father. No more dark speech, no more parables, no more riddles. And then he says in verse 20, I will not pray the Father for you, because the Father loves you himself. And the disciples respond back, now you're talking plainly without any more riddles or dark speeches. Okay? So I don't see that there's a place in Scripture, and if you put that together with other places, uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Think of it as him pleading with the Father as far as there. He's pleading for us. Yes. Who are down here on earth fighting these battles that he's always interested in. Yes, he's pleading for us, to us, 
So the persons he's pleading to, so remember he told his disciples, it's expedient for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the comforter won't come. And when the comforter comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. He's going to take what is mine and make it known to you. So who is the comforter listening to? If he's not going to speak on his own, he's speaking only what he hears. Who is he listening to? Jesus. So Jesus' pleadings in heaven are pleadings for you and for me that the Holy Spirit takes and communicates to us. So it's not pleading to the Father, Father, please be gracious. It's pleading to each one of you, please, son, daughter, I love you. Let me save you. Let me heal you. There's no need for you to die. Yes? Even that concept of, if I do not go away, the comfort will not come. The way we turn it, it's like, ah, you've got... Christ, I'm not going to go down there, you know? But but tell us what it really means. It really means that we cannot understand our need for him and accept him without the absence of someone visible over the other side of the ocean that we can are talking to. So, So basically, if Jesus stayed on earth physically... Whenever the, the whenever there was a question about you know the scripture and what should be done, what would the disciples have done? Would they have taken the scriptures and wrestled with them and asked for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, searching, comparing scripture to scripture? They just gone to Christ to have the answer given. So, so Christ's removal and the sending of the Spirit was for their own spiritual development that they could experience the fruits of the Spirit that come as we journey in our our, our personal study and walk with God each day. Okay. Yes. So you're saying it's not an absence of the Holy Spirit that was that was here. It was a lack of going to the Father, going to the Holy Spirit for understanding. He's asking for those again. He said it wasn't a lack of the Holy Spirit on earth prior to Christ's ascension. Uh, well, what does it say in Psalms 51? Take not your spirit from me. The Spirit was working in the Old Testament times. Isn't that right? Yeah. What, what about uh, John the Baptist? There was none of women. That had greater, what? Of the Holy Spirit, there's not one of, of women had more of the Holy Spirit than John. Well, how could that be if the Holy Spirit wasn't here yet? Our creation. Yeah. No, the Spirit was always here. But people weren't open to the Holy Spirit. And think we might even come to what's going to happen here at the end as the Holy Spirit's withdrawn. So... In, in, so back to this whole idea then about the law and the transgression of the law. It says in Revelation 14, 12, well, actually, the, there is a question in the lesson first. It says, what would be the major characteristics of God's people in the time of the end? How does the issue of obedience come into play? And the paragraph at the end, somebody read that for us. God has done. God has done for us all that infinite love could. In return, he asked of us love and obedience. In a time in which the world's plagued by rampant lawlessness and a relativistic philosophy which claims that good and evil depends simply on cultural circumstances and communal and personal preferences, there must and will be a people who will staunchly defend God's standard of holiness, the Ten Commandments. And it says, Revelation 14, 12, remember, staunchly defend God's standard of holiness, the Ten Commandments. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Revelation 14, 12. So my question to you, what do you believe the Bible is referring to when it talks about obeying God's commandments? Do you agree with the lesson or do you have other thoughts? There'll be a people who will trust and, and they will love and be trustworthy people. Yeah, I agree. Trustworthy, loving people. Were the Ten Commandments given to Adam and Eve in the garden? No. 
Did the angels know about the Ten Commandments? No. Jesus replied, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two. So, according to Jesus, what is the, the commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. Uh, it says in Romans 13.10, Love does, does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14, The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. When you hear that Revelation 14 text about the, the saints at the end, the patient endurance of part of the saints who obey God's commandments, are you thinking loving others more than self? Are you thinking make sure you don't go to church on Sunday? <laughs> well, we have tended in the past, if we have thought about the diagnosis as being um, a law of broken behavior, then we have thought about the Ten Commandments as, as actually that, you know, whether I will go to church on Sabbath or Sunday at the very end, or whether I will do all those other commandments. So, if you, again, like you said, if you have the right diagnosis, you have the right <coughs> attitude about what God really wants from us. What does he really want? Revelation chapter 12, describing those people who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. What does that mean? They don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. What does that mean? They love others. They're willing to give their lives for others. Something changed inside them. 2,000 years ago, there was a people on earth who were Sabbath-keeping Tithe paying, creation, God believing, sanctuary observing, health message abiding, fastidiously keeping the commandments. But what about love? When Christ wanted to heal a man on Sabbath, what did they want to do? They would rather have a a man not be healed and murder the one who heals on Sabbath. Um, And then when God came and stood among them, they loved him, right? adored him and worshipped him. They hated him and they killed him. Will it be this way again with Christians when Christ comes? Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty two and 23, Many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Notice, whose name are they doing this in? This is not in the name of Buddha. This is not in the name of Hare Krishna. And this is not in the name of Muhammad. He is speaking of Christians. They're doing this in the name of Christ. And he says, Then I tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. How might we see this today? People keeping the commandments of God, just like the Jews were 2,000 years ago, yet enemies of God. How how might this manifest in in our world right now today? We saw people chain themselves to a marble block of the Ten Commandments in Alabama when the judge refused to take them from his, his, uh, his uh, court chambers. And they had their own size. This is our God. Talking about a block of stone. Okay. So worshiping the law. Other Christians persecuting other Christians because they don't prescribe to the same beliefs. So therefore, you know, if... if if you're, if the legal system says, well, let's pass a law to do something, and Christians, some Christians say, no, I don't think that's right, then I can see persecution by other Christians to, to conform to what the beliefs. Okay. Is there a movement in Christianity in America now 
Is there, is there a politically active arm of Christianity that wants to pass laws to enforce certain ways of living as, in, our, in our society? Sure, yes. yeah, would, would that be God's method? No. no. We see that happening right now. And do you think some of those people are going to be shocked? Lord, Lord, we, we got the right Supreme Court justices elected in your name. We got the right presidents and congressmen in, in, in office in your name, Lord. We did this for you. Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Yes. Tim, you were talking about the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. How many of you have heard a sermon that he was simply summarizing the Ten Commandments, the first four about God and the last six about your fellow man? Sure, that's exactly what he was doing. The first four are love about God, the first four commandments are loving God, and the last six are loving man. Of course that's what he was doing. Yeah, the commandments, in fact, let's, let's go on. It's a great segue to Romans 5, where... Uh, Paul says, starting in verse 12, now, now notice the issue of the law here and the written law and where it comes in. Notice this. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all have sinned, for before the law was given, notice, before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. Think that through for a minute. Death reigned before the law was given. What law was Paul talking about here? So before the Ten Commandments was given, the law of death was reigning until Adam to Moses. And why did death reign if some did not break a command, if you notice, he said, some did not break a command as Adam did. Why was death still reigning then? There was still transgression of that divine law. How could that be if some did not break a command and the law had not yet been given? Before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. So why was death still reigning if they hadn't broken a command like Adam and sin is not taken into account without the law? Why was death still reigning? Yes. I like your illustration of the gravity. Whether or not there's a law that says in writing somewhere that, that if you drop something, it's going to fall. Still, if you drop it, it's going to fall. And whether or not there's a, uh, the stones with different commands oriented to our earth, still the law of love is in effect. And when we violate that law of life, there's still going to be consequences to that. Very well said. And you take the analogy, just if we don't have written on a building somewhere, in the day you jump off this building, you will surely die. And it's not written down. It hasn't been put in stone anywhere. And, and people just start jumping off the building. Boom. Everybody keeps jumping off the building. Uh, they're still going to have the same consequence, aren't they? Now, how does this rate to, uh, relate to the law of love? The law of love is the design template for life. And eat, when Adam and Eve breached that law... Their hearts were no longer operating in other-centered love. Their hearts were operating on fear and selfishness. And their children were born. What was the natural state of the heart of mankind since Adam and Eve fell? Fear and selfishness. So even though they didn't, this is, this is really, really in, in, a powerful insight to recognize. How many of you chose to be born a sinner? How many of you chose to be born with hearts filled with fear and selfishness? Do you understand what that means? You don't need to feel guilty. You don't need to feel guilty, guys. It's not your fault. 
It is not your fault you have this condition. This is why this whole punitive idea that we are so terrified God's going to punish us for this condition is ludicrous. Imagine you're a grandparent and your child rebels and goes out into wild living, maybe becomes a prostitute, gets HIV infected, marries an HIV infected man, and the kids together have a child and your grandchild is born HIV infected. What did your grandchild do wrong? (laughs) Nothing. Your grandchild did nothing wrong. Will you hate your grandchild? Will you want to hurt your grandchild, punish your grandchild? But will your grandchild have a condition if unremedied will kill it? That's every human being since Adam and Eve. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. It's not our fault. We don't need to feel bad for it. But if we don't accept what Christ has done, his remedy to heal us, we're still going to die from it. So death was still reigning, even though they themselves hadn't done anything wrong. Yes? Would it be our fault, quote-unquote, continue in sin once we're made aware of it. Okay, great question. So, the HIV-infected grandchild grows up, he's now an adult, and there's a free remedy offered that will cure him. And he refuses the remedy. Will that be his fault? Yes. Okay, that's our situation. It's not our fault we have the condition. It is our fault if we refuse the remedy. Who cares if it's his fault? Well, each one of us care, though. How many of you have felt bad because you're a sinner? How many of you have struggled at some point in your life feeling down on yourself because you realized you're a sinner? Okay? And and it's very freeing to realize, wait a minute, I don't have to feel guilty for the fact I'm a sinner. I need to be focusing on, whoa, uh, have I accepted the remedy and am I partaking of that remedy every day that will heal me? That's the question I need to be answering. Now, if with the HIV, hold on a second, HIV-infected kid, will there be symptoms of that disease he'll suffer with? Now, we're born with sinfulness, a sin condition. What are the symptoms of a heart that's sinful? Acts of sin. Acts of sin, bad deeds. I mean, I'm going to tell you, every human being sins because every human being is born with a condition of heart that's sinful. And the sins are not the problem, they're the symptoms. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. You say if you, you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. He's saying those acts are the outgrowth of a sick heart. And so the condition of heart, if unremedied, if we don't get Christ's remedy, if, we don't, if we're not reborn, if we don't have the law written in the heart and mind, if we don't have the stony heart removed and the heart of flesh put in, if we don't have circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, if we don't have the mind of Christ, all these metaphors are saying the same thing. If we just let our natural heart that we're born with take over, we will all act destructively, sinfully, because we can't help but act destructively because our hearts are sick. But if we have Christ's remedy that comes in, we get a new heart and a right spirit. We have new motives, new desires, new thoughts. And then we begin to act in different ways because we've had a change of heart worked by the Holy Spirit. Yes? You said we not feel guilty for sin. And are you referring to once we ask for forgiveness and been forgiven, we no longer have to feel guilty for that? No, I said we're not to feel guilty for the fact we're born sinners. We're born sinners, but there still is something to be said for guilt when you are in sin and you know that you are. Yeah. The way, yes, the, the conscience convicts of wrongdoing to help turn us back to repentance in the right direction. And this would be the role of the law. The law is not to show us how good we are, but to show us how bad we are. Exactly. That we have something that's dirty, that's something that needs to be changed. It's a diagnostic instrument for the soul, an MRI for the soul. The law reveals the selfishness in the heart and shows us how far apart from God's standard that we are, so that we will then go to the one, the great physician, who will heal and write the law in the heart that we can't do for ourselves. Ken? With respect to the, um, the idea of guilt for 
a child, for instance, as opposed to a person who's you know come of age and been able to learn the difference between good and bad. Uh, doesn't that also speak to the idea of original sin, where apparently some people believe that unless you baptize a child uh, as soon as they're born, uh, they're lost because uh, they haven't been cleansed of sin. Okay, you brought that up. We'll jump to that portion in the lesson right now. It's in Tuesday's lesson, and it's in the first paragraph, and it talks about this idea that you just said in Tuesday's lesson, where it says, the widespread rite of infant baptism is linked closely to the acknowledgement of this belief that uh, we are born corrupted by Adam's fall and uh, deemed sinners, we're, we're deemed for destruction unless we're baptized. That doctrine, this idea that you're born not only sinful, but condemned to eternal torment, and coupled with the idea that there's an immortal soul, you put those two together, is the root behind the whole anti-abortion movement. The anti-abortion movement is based out of Catholicism on the belief that at conception, an immortal soul that is condemned to go to hell has just been created, and if that soul is not given last rites or baptized, then all the abortions are filling hell with immortal souls that will torment forever and ever in hell. That's where the whole thing about the anti-abortion movement started, just so you know, the theological underpinnings for it. Yes, there's a hand back here. Um, Do you feel that baptism actually is needed for salvation? Uh, baptism in the Bible sense, which is baptism, the Greek word baptisma, which means to immerse. And the immersion is to immerse the mind and heart by the Holy Spirit into the character of Christ. So yes, and the physical baptism in water is just symbolic showing that our minds and characters have been immersed in Christ's likeness. And we've been raised to a new life with a heart, soul, and mind that are no longer self-centered, but other-centered. So yes, baptism by the Holy Spirit Regenerating the heart and mind, Christ-likeness is necessary for salvation. We're talking about the law, the Ten Commandments, why it was given. This whole thing about Paul saying, look, the law wasn't uh, in, a, in effect until Moses gave it there, the written law. And we know from Galatians that the law was added as a schoolmaster. It was mentioned back here as a schoolmaster to, to bring us to Christ and diagnose the problem. In Patriarchs and Prophets 364, it says the following. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after this fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no need for the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would have never been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon the tablets of stone. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need for the additional directions given to Moses. So you notice that this law, this, this law, this written process of giving rules and exactions are a process of God interceding, intervening with us to provide us a hedge of protection. To provide, just like a parent who tells a, a young child, you know, don't go out in the street and play. Why is a parent putting a restriction there? Because they want to restrict the liberties or to protect the child. Okay? God gave us all these rules and regulations not as a means of salvation, but for two things. One, to diagnose how sick we are, and two, to protect us from self-destruction while we were reconciling to God and being healed and regenerated. Through God's healing and regeneration, can we have victory over sin here on this earth? And must we? was a couple of good points because it's actually coming up in the lesson. Uh, I just want to point out there are two types, several types of obedience. It talks about obedience. Listen to this type of obedience described in an article, Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. Listen to this type of obedience. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. 
By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully and in the love of God. It is a mere mechanical performance. And if dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace and quietude to the soul. You see, you see this in the Pharisees and Sadducees of Christ's day. They had a law. And the law has to be kept. And you must do it. But there was, there was no understanding there. It's God said it. He's the authority. If you don't do it, he's going to punish. It was this fear-based, sullen obedience that resulted in what kind of a character was developed in them. Characters of rebels. They rebelled against God. And that will happen today. If we teach a God who is, is going to punish you if you don't do it, and you're doing it because you have to, because you're afraid of punishment, guess what happens over the time? You develop the character of a rebel. That's what happens. Yeah. And so, really quickly, and we're going to come to your question about victory now, but there's three levels of obedience. Level one is childlike obedience. We obey out of fear of punishment. Children, this is often why we do things as children, isn't it? Fear of punishment. How many times do we see God having to treat people in the Bible like children? But there's another level. As we grow up, there's some point we come to resonate with a love for our parents, and we want to please them and make them happy. We don't really understand why, but we just know it makes them happy, so we're going to do it. Level two, we're no longer afraid. We want to please and make happy. But then there's level three obedience, the obedience of an understanding friend who actually understands the reason why and agrees with, with God. Which version do you think God wants from us? Yes, he's, he's begging us to understand why and to agree with him. Yes? I guess I would hesitate in saying that the obedience he wants from us. And the reason that I would say that, I guess, is because we can't understand all the reasons that God has for why he wants to do what he wants us to do. So do we only obey God when we understand what he wants for us? And in fact, if we're only obeying God when we understand what he wants for us, is that obedience at all? If if we are just obeying God because we understand his reasons, then we're just agreeing with God, saying, yes, that's right, so I'll do it. If If we, in effect, are we saying that I will obey you because I think what you're saying is right? But if I don't think what you're telling me is right, if I don't understand that I won't obey it, I don't think that's exactly the obedience God wants. A couple, couple of points. Number one, what is it that we are ultimately to understand? Say that last time for somebody to say it. We're to understand God. Are we not to understand Him, His nature, His character, His methods, His principles, the law of love, how, how, his, how his universe operates? We're to understand Him. Are we, are we to do that or not? Yes. Now, might there be certain circumstances, certain specific situations that we may not fully understand all the permutations to, but we still have understanding of God, his character, his nature? But he still, I mean, he still wants the childlike obedience even from those. So we come as one of these little children. Well, define childlike obedience. Right. And it's not, and that's the thing I would say that the definition you gave of childlike obedience was not exactly all childlike obedience, not always from fear. For instance, when my little boy is two years old, when I tell him to do something, it makes my day when he says, okay, Papa, and doesn't say why. Now he says why frequently. But when he doesn't say why, I not because I know that he fears me and respects me. It's because I know that he knows that his papa loves him more than anything in the world and would never ask him to do something that wasn't for his own good. That's great when we're two. But if your son grows up 22 years from now when he's 24 and has the same attitude, we call that retarded. Right. But what I would say is that you, you, had, you had levels of obedience. 
obedience. But I would say at all times, we have components of all of those types of obedience, even as far as we grow. What we've done and what Satan has duped us into doing is thinking that the childlike obedience is the ideal that God wants from us, and we have developed a generation of spiritual retards. And I'm going to read to you from the scripture. This is is Hebrews chapter 5, Paul, starting in verse 11. We have much to say to you about this, and it's talking about what Christ has done for us and so forth. But it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone lives on milk, still being an infant, childlike faith, you see is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Children who have the childlike faith don't even understand righteousness, according to Paul. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Notice, constant use. We develop the ability to distinguish good from evil. We can understand the difference. We don't have to have God tell us, that's good, that's bad. We have developed the ability to distinguish the good from the evil. This is what God wants us to do. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again. Now notice what we're we're not going to lay again. We're not going to lay again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Repentance from acts, what are we focused on? Behavior, the Ten Commandments, the do's and the don'ts. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. No, we're moving past that. That's the child stuff. That, Daddy, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. I don't want to disappoint you, Daddy. I want to make you happy. So you just tell me, I don't really care. I'll do whatever you say. I don't need to understand. Uh, imagine your college student going to Southern over here, first semester, they're 19, 18 years old, first time they move away, and every morning they want to start the day with a good relationship with mommy and daddy. So they call home in the morning when they get up, and they say, Mom, Dad, hope things are going well for you today. I had a good night's rest last night. And by the way, it's a little bit uh, misty out today. Um, should I wear my, uh, my uh, raincoat today or should I not? You just tell me. I don't want to disappoint you. And by the way, I was thinking about wearing the sneakers with this outfit. You tell me which ones to wear. Should I? And by the way, this weekend, some of the kids are going out for a camping trip over the weekend. Should I go camping with them on the weekend or should I stay and go to church? Uh, you just tell me what to do. I don't, I, I'll just do whatever you say because I never want to disappoint you and let you down. Now, would we be proud and think this is a mature child? This is what a lot of people approach God with. Uh, we don't understand. We're not to develop. We're just supposed to trust him and follow what he tells us to do. And then you mentioned something else about God, uh, obeying God uh, if, if we don't agree with him. I would say no. God does not want us to obey him if we actually disagree with him and think he's wrong. Because obeying him when we actually think he's wrong will harden our hearts and turn us into rebels. But if we come from the elementary um, understanding of who God is, would we, would we, would we, once we come from the milk of the word, once we start to understand, would we think that God would be wrong if we're convinced that he is leading us to do something? We wouldn't have the idea that God has our worst interest in mind. I'll give you an example. One more thing, too, is to say that um, I'm not saying that we believe with blind faith and, and we whatever God says, that's it, you know, it settles it. God says, come and let us reason together. So many times I've found that the biggest development in my faith in my as a Christian has been when he's led me and convicted me of something that I need to do, when I can't see how this thing's going to work out once I do it. But then I, I go forth in faith because God has my best interest in mind. And then he comes and he reveals to me the reasons why. So God asks me to obey first before I understand. And then he can open up. To, and that is so much a faith builder. And, and a Actually, you just gave a reason. 
You gave a reason. You didn't go up for without a reason. I had a reason. I know God, and I know he has my best interests at heart. I have a good reason to go forward. I'm not going forward blindly without reason. Now, I may not understand. That's what I'm saying, and that's what I was trying to clarify. It's not saying that we're going forth with this fear and trepidation of a God who's going to kill us, because then we don't understand who God is. So my point to you was that when you went forward, even though you didn't understand all the permutations, but you understood God has my best interests at heart, you were not going forward believing that what God was wanting you to do was wrong for you. You now believe it's right for you, even though you don't understand it. Because you know he has your best interest at heart. Uh, Abraham would be an example. When Abraham got the message to take Isaac and sacrifice him, Abraham was initially resistant to this. And it was three days he wrestled with God on this issue. And it was only when he got his mind around the reality, okay, this was a miracle child. And if God wants me to do this, I trust him. He can raise this child again. That's when he went forward to do it. He couldn't do it until he got his mind to in a harmony with God on that. I get to her point. The lesson asks us on Matthew chapter 25 about the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, and I'm just going to start uh, talking about the guy with one talent and what happened to the one talent. And I want to show you really what this parable is telling you about. It starts in Matthew chapter 25, verse 24. It says, Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went, went out and hid... Uh, your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that, uh, that I harvest where I do not sow and gather where I do not spread seed. Well, then, you should have put my money in deposit with the bankers and, and so, so forth and had interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given to, and he will have abundance. Whoever does not have it, uh, what he has will be taken from him. Throw this worthless servant outside into the darkness will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God designed our brains to work in certain ways. The neural circuits that you use and you activate actually produce proteins that we call recruit new neurons, make new neurons, expand that circuitry, and that talent and ability grows. If you don't use those neural circuits, the brain actually deletes those neurons, prunes back those dendrites, uh, uh, cuts back those circuitry, and so you lose the ability you have. A child born with gifted ability for music never takes a music lesson in their life what will happen to that ability over time? Yeah, I mean, we lose what we do not use. This is not an infliction by the master. This is a, a description of the incredible design that God gave us. Those who have talents and invest them and work them, do you notice that the, not only do they expand the ones they have, but they pick up new abilities? Because the interconnections of the brain and the way the brain rewires itself, this is exactly how we, we handle this. Now, notice something else. Um, what was the perception that this particular servant had of the master? He was a hard man inciting love or inciting fear. Another way the brain works. When the fear circuits of the brain fire, the fight or flight response, when you're frightened, when you're having the fear and anxiety fire, several things happen physiologically that obstruct growth and development. And one, blood is shunted out of the organs of the, of the gut into the muscles so you can't absorb nutrition anymore. If you have a big meal on your, on your gut, you've just eaten and something really frightens you, you'll actually vomit it back up because all the blood is shunted out of the organs that assimilate nutrition and help you grow during high stress and, and the fight or flight response. Uh, under high stress, the immune system is suppressed, so we are more vulnerable to infections. And it, brain neural circuitry, when the, when the fear centers fire, it actually suppresses the prefrontal cortex. This is why people who test anxieties can't score well, because they're so fearful, they freeze. Or people who, maybe you've had the experience of getting up in front and giving a speech or giving a presentation and you, or, or performing music, and you get up front and all that anxiety hits, and you can't, for, you can't remember what you're going to say. What happened? When the anxiety centers of the brain fire, it actually 
impairs the function of the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is where we actually reason, develop, where we love, where we have empathy. And so when you have a fear-based God, it impairs growth, spiritual growth, physical growth, um, relational growth. It impairs love, which comes out of the prefrontal cortex. And we now have brain imaging studies that document when you worship a God of fear, an authoritarian God, a punitive God, it actually interferes with development of the higher cortex. Conversely, when you worship a God of love, as revealed in Jesus Christ, they measurably can see the measurable enhancement of the prefrontal cortex circuits. And we actually get, not only do we get enhanced uh, uh, prefrontal cortex on on an imaging machine, but the person experiences greater peace, greater well-being, more love, more empathy, blood pressure goes down, stress hormones go down, cognition and memory improve, all measurable when we worship a God of love. Love is the medium of growth. Fear is the medium of destruction. Perfect love casts out all fear. And it ties right back to the God concept. So in this parable, this guy had, to start with, a fear base. You're a mean and severe man. I'm afraid. How can my talent grow in an environment like that? Our talents for God cannot grow when we worship a fear-based God that makes us afraid. Our talents grow best when we worship the truth about God, the character of love that takes away our fear, and then we invest our energies. We're not afraid to go out and talk to people. We're not afraid to go out and, and invest monies and resources for God's cause because fear is taken away. Fear paralyzes us from ministry and growth. Love enables us and compels us from ministry and growth. Now to your question. In the bottom pink section on Tuesday, it asked the question, I think, related to what you're talking about. It says, suppose you reach a point where you truly had victory over sin. That is, you weren't committing any known sin. More so, you were always kind, loving, generous, and living in accord with the light that you had. Suppose you perfectly reflected the character of Jesus. Why, though, would you still need a Savior whose righteousness alone can allow you to stand with no condemnation before God? You see the implications of that. Hope you guys are just like on, whoa, there is a serious problem with this. Now I'm going to read to you from one of the founders of our church. This is out of a book called The Great Controversy, page 613. It says, when the third angel's message closes, mercy no longer pleads for the guilty inhabitants of the earth. The people of God have accomplished their work. They have received the latter rain, the refreshing from the presence of the Lord, and they are prepared for the trying hour before them. Angels are hastening to and fro in heaven. An angel returned from the earth announces that his work is done. The final test has been brought upon the world, and all who have proved themselves loyal to the divine precepts have received the seal of the living God. Then Jesus ceases his intercession in the sanctuary above. He lifts his hands with a loud voice as it is done, and all the angelic hosts lay off their crowns as he makes a solemn announcement. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. Every case has been decided for life or death. You should think, who decided those cases? Uh, Christ has made an atonement for his people and blotted out their sins. From where has sins been blotted out? Think that one through. Who makes the decision? Where are the sins blotted out? The, the number of his subjects is made up. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of his kingdom under the whole heaven. When he leaves the sanctuary, darkness covers the inhabitants of the earth. In that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. I, mean, I thought our, our lesson just said we had, always had to have that. That there will never be a time when that's not true. That we still need Jesus there to introduce us to the Father. But, but this writer says... There's going to come a time when, when we're going to stand before God without Jesus interceding. What has he been interceding to do all this time? What are his intercessions? What has he been, been trying to accomplish? The restraint which has been upon the wicked is removed, and Satan has entire control of the impenitent. God's long-suffering has ended. The world has rejected his mercy, despised his love, and trampled upon his law. The wicked have passed the boundary of their probation. What does that mean? Why? The Spirit of God, persistently resisted, has been at last withdrawn. Why was it withdrawn? 
Persistently resisted is the key. Unsheltered by divine grace, they have no protection from the wicked one. Satan will then plunge the inhabitants of the earth into one great final trouble. As the angels of God cease to hold the fierce winds of human passion, all the elements of strife will be let loose. Now, do you guys understand what, just, what was just described? Who is it that's going to decide your case for life or death? So every person is making a decision to trust God and give their lives to him or to close the heart to God. Every case is decided. Uh, Christ has made atonement. What does atonement mean? At one minute. Unity. We're all one again. He's made atonement for his people and blotted out their sins. Where does sins get blotted out from? Our characters, our hearts, our minds. We have been made holy. We have been renewed. We have been regenerated. The record books in heaven are going to show there's the problem people here, but those problem people said to Jesus Christ. The, 12, the Spirit came and took all that Christ had achieved, reproduced it in them, blotted out the rebelliousness, blotted out the fear, blotted out the selfishness, wrote in the law of love written on the heart and mind again as the new covenant is. They are now like Christ in heart. The sin has been blotted out of our characters and our hearts. And then it goes... In that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. What has Christ been interceding to do? To blot sin out of us. To bring us back into unity with God. To show us the Father. If you see me, you've seen the Father. To bring us back into oneness with Him. Father, I pray that they will be one as you and I are one. Me and me, you and me, me and them, all of us in one. And when He achieves that, when He finishes His work, when we are again unified in heart, mind, character to be one with Christ, Christ's work is done. He stands up. I've finished. I've sealed my people. They are so settled into the truth, intellectually and spiritually, nothing can move them. Now do we need somebody between us and the Father? Are we ready to meet Him? It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to be looked forward to. It's joyful time. Yes? And uh, talking about that fear, that we often think about that time as a very fearful time, but really if we've already been sealed with His character, then it's going to be a joyful time because we'll be pleading with other people saying, come with me. Um, I'm enjoying the fruits of the character of God. I want you as well. And so it's not going to be about us running to the hills and, and being afraid, but rather trying to gather other people around us. And not only that, I'm going to tell you like Moses coming off the mountain. I believe we're going to be radiating divine glory. We, our faces are going to light up like Stephen's when he's being stoned, like Moses. As we come into that harmony and unity, we become those real conduits again of God's love and truth, and it shines forth for us. It really does. Um, fear, you know, of selfishness, trying to, trying to um, save ourselves. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So Does that answer your question? Good. Back there. Yes. Is God more powerful than natural law? Is God more powerful? Which, which natural law are we talking about? Uh, well, it's, it, you, can't, you can't answer the question in general. There are natural laws that he put in place that he did create, like gravity, thermodynamics, time, space. But there is one natural law that um, emanates from his personhood, and that's the law of love. He is love. God is love. That natural law, you're asking, is he greater than himself? I mean, you answer that. Is God greater than himself? No. Well, what about sin? What about it? Is he, you, you say that sin is more like a natural law. No, sin is transgression of the natural law. Sin is stepping outside of the natural law. See, law of love emanates from God. God is love. All life he designed to operate on the principle of other-centered love. That's what love, life is designed to run upon. Sin is when you step outside of that and try to run on selfishness and self-centeredness instead. So sin is a breaking of the law of love. We can use some of the natural laws of nature, which also were constructed on the pattern of love, 
like respiration gives away freely carbon dioxide to the plants. The plants give back oxygen to us, a never-ending circle of giving, free giving, which life is based upon in nature, a natural example of the law of love. If you break that law, tie a plastic bag over your head, you can't live outside that law. Breaking the law results in death. So God is not greater than himself unless you want to say he is greater than himself. I mean, I don't know how you answer that question. Yes, over here. Well, just thinking about what you just said there, uh, go back to Romans, if death reigned before the law was given, and the law must be more than just the Ten Commandments that were given. There's... Excellent! Good for you! Beautifully said! When we strive to live up to that law, thinking we're saving ourselves, the law was never, never given as a tool to fix the sin problem. Excellent! Absolutely right. It is the law of love, which emanates from God's character, that was broken in heaven by the angels, was broken by Adam and Eve in the garden when they believed the lies, lies believed, break the circle of love and trust. That's what caused the transformation and condition change from love to self-centered beings. And without God's intercession and interventions, the only result is ruin and death. It says in uh, James chapter 1, no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desire. When the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So you're exactly right. And the law was given, the written law was given to diagnose the condition, to show how sick we are, but it could never cure us. In Romans 7, Paul goes through this whole dialogue about how I used to try to keep the law, uh, inadvertently thinking I could be saved, but, the, but it only made matters worse because what I thought was a treatment remedy was actually just a diagnostic instrument, and it couldn't get me well. And there's last question way in the back. Yes? Um, first of all, I would like to know what your thoughts are on have the, has the Adventist church matured in their belief? And number two, how would myself and people that grew up in the church that had the fear because this is basically all new to me as far as fear versus love that we're talking about. I have a lot of friends out there that grew up in the Adventist church and church schools that have a lot more fear than actually I've worked through. And I'm curious to know how you would approach them in that situation. Christ Object Lessons, page 415, says this. The final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's coming is the truth about God's character of love. The message we need to be taking to the world, to our people, and to the world at large, is the truth about God's character of love. Love awakens love in the heart. Perfect love casts out all fear. Where the breakdown in our churches come is because we've taken doctrines and severed them from their true root and heart, which are, which are the character of God's love. And we can prove the seventh-day Sabbaths from the Bible all by itself. We can prove the state of the dead from the Bible all by itself. We can prove the second coming of Christ from the Bible all by itself. We have these doctrines. We set them up like little dominoes out there all by themselves, set it separate and distinct. And that then creates this, this forensic legal type of approach to, to the whole gospel. The doctrines are only important important as they reveal to us truth about the God of the universe. And so what do we learn about God because of the Sabbath? What do we learn about God because he doesn't have a place where people will burn forever in hell? Or what do we learn about God if we believe there is such a place like that? You see, all these things are important as they reflect to us the truth about God. And so we need to re-examine our doctrines in light of the truth about God 
And if you value um, uh, patriarchs and prophets, I recommend pulling that book out, reading chapter one. Just read chapter one of that book. The setting is incredible. What was going on in heaven, how sin originated, what the issues were over, how God responded. And it will give you a context in order to understand all these other things we're dealing with downstream. It helps us set the diagnosis right. And the diagnosis is God is a God of love. His universe runs on love. Love was broken and God is working to restore love in the hearts of his creatures, bringing us back into oneness, at one with him again. I wish we had more time, but we're already a minute over. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love, as Jesus revealed him to be. We pray that, that you will send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds this week, that as we reflect and study on these things, some of the misunderstandings and distortions and, and confusions that have entered our, our thoughts and our, and our teachings will be removed by the, by the light of your word, and the working of your spirit, that we can experience more truthfully who you are, that we can then be transformed from your enemies living in fear and insecurity to your friends who love others more than ourselves, and that we can go out sharing your love with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.